podcast um, brought to you by the Scottish Documentary Institute. Uh, uh, just a small podcast for you today um, with filmmaker Emma Davy, which talks about the film I Am Breathing, which she directed alongside filmmaker Morag McKinnon. Um, and I think the film came out back in 2013. Um, audio was taken from a masterclass that she did at the start of 2014 um, held here at Edinburgh College of Art where Emma is also the head of the film department um, if you'd like to see I Am Breathing uh, then you should take a look at IamBreathing.com uh, or if you go to IamBreathing.com forward slash free um, you may find that someone has also paid for you to watch the film already so you might not have to and pay to watch it, or you can buy the DVD on Amazon uh, these days as well, so um, plenty of options for you there. Um, the documentary itself follows the final days of Neil Platt, who in his 30s was diagnosed with MND, which is also known as ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, Emma talks about the making of the film, uh, alongside some general thoughts on um, filmmaking in general. Uh, so well worth a listen. Uh, we're looking at around 20 minutes of uh, reasonably inspiring chat. So get comfy and I'll see you on the other side. So um, I didn't know Neil when um, when the, he began being ill. Basically, Neil was an old friend of Moreg McKinnon, the co-director. And when he got ill, as you can see, he kept this blog and he was very keen to communicate with people about this illness and about how hard it was for him to deal with it. And um, in the blog, at a certain occasion, he wrote, I really want people to come and tell my story. And Morag and I had been developing actually fiction work together. I wasn't teaching or anything at the time. Or was I? Yes, I was. <coughs> Sorry, I forgot. Um, but she basically contacted me and asked if I'd like to... Um, be involved in directing a film about this friend of hers. And quite honestly, I said, Morag, I don't think I can do that kind of project. You know, I make films about artists and things that aren't ethically complicated. And, you know, even though he's willing to have the cameras there, there's a question of, is it still right to film something like that? You know, it's not straightforward. Just because somebody wants to be filmed, for me, it doesn't mean that a camera should be there. Um, but anyway, we decided that we would maybe make a short film to try to promote what he wanted to in terms of awareness of this illness. So that's <coughs> what we set out to make initially was that. The, the kind of strength and force of who this man was, though, really quickly changed the film. And really quickly it became this, this bigger container for who he was. And then I think where it began really changing was when we realised that we could use his own words. Because I think, for me, there was always this thing of, like, I'd, I had this sense that I didn't want to take his power away. And I think a lot of my questions were, like, how can you give somebody power who you're filming? Particularly in that documentary sense, where he's not able to move from here down, and yet he's got such an active mind, but we can't show that mind. So how do we do that? And then when we thought that we could use the blog much more creatively, this amazing thing that he wrote, then we realised that we could actually... Um, that we could make a very different film and that it could have elements of fiction in it and that actually imaginatively it could go to, to really different places. So that's when the film became a whole bigger, a whole bigger and different um, 
being and a different identity. But we had to kind of discover that as we went. And then it took quite a while for us to get the language of the film because we had this footage with Neil that was quite hard to watch. Um, and then, you know, the family were so open and being involved and they said, just have any archive material, anything that you feel you need. And so then we had this archive, but then how did it all link together? And you'll see that there's a lot of constructed imagery in the film. It's not like it's all official documentary. Some of it is stuff that we went back. I mean, those feet at the beginning of the film are actually mine. There's all kinds of cheats like that, which I probably shouldn't tell you. But, you know, we kind of had this sense that actually it's not about, it's not about, is it, is it, factually true in terms of that, but is it emotionally true? And for me, documentary is about an emotional truth, because what is factually true? So I suppose that, you know, we took liberty with some things. Yeah, no, we did. And then I think, I think the thing that, that as I say, the thing that shifted it into a, long, a bigger film was this thing of using his blog. And that's when we said, because there's always this thing, as we know who are in documentary, that any commissioning editor from another country would say, we have endless stories like this at home. We don't need this story. So it's like, for us, was like, how could this be a universal thing that would touch people <coughs> and not just be a story about this man with motor neuron disease, but how would it travel to different countries? How would it be seen? And that's where we, we finding this other language was what interested us. So we weren't making a film about motor neuron disease, but we're making a film about a man in this space between life and death, and a man who could tell us something about what it was to be in that space. And then we discovered that the writing had a drama, because the drama was the drama of being in the moment, of would you manage to write that, or wouldn't you? You know, would you manage to communicate, or wouldn't you? And it was really tough, you know, it was incredible. We'd be, I mean, you know, you'd be, I remember, walking around the Botanic Gardens one day and Morag phoned me and said, have you seen the latest blog? And this was the blog, three blogs before he died. And it was just like, this was what it was like. We all who knew, all who knew him were just waiting for what's the next blog going to say and what's it going to reveal about his condition? And it was just like, <coughs> you know, such an incredible openness for such a time. Why, why is the visceral so important? I think the, the, his experience, you know, in a way for me, documentary is trying to imagine the experience of the other. It's not about relating <coughs> the experience of the other, but it's trying to imagine it. And I guess that's what makes a kind of ethical sense for me of being in a room like that with my camera. And if I think, okay, so he's paralysed from here down, and he was a very physical man. I mean, if you read his writing, what he missed most was giving people a hug, you know? So he was somebody who, I mean, Louise would describe how they tried to hug and he had, she had to put his arms around him. And I thought, here's this man who can't play with his child, who can't use these arms, who can't use these legs. And I guess I just felt like that was, the, everything that he missed was what the film was about. And that's what we all had. Because in a way, the film had to be about something like life, not death. In order for it, for it to, to make any sense, it had to not be about the act of dying, but actually the act of living. 
And maybe what happened for us when we'd visited Neil was we went, you know, and I often say this, that, you know, being with Neil made me think, my God, I can lift up a coffee cup. What a miracle. What a miracle I can do that. And, you know, at that very basic level, we wanted to try and get that sensory freedom that we have. In <coughs> so I think that's why all that stuff was so important and why, you know, we were really trying to get what is that thing of, of, you know, having these limbs and having this freedom and how can we show that? And I think you see very clearly when he's stuck in the bed and all his lovely friends come and throw his son up in the air, just the contrast of him stuck and them going like that is really, it's quite shocking with the, the last thing before he died that we found really hard to look at. I mean, when we first began editing it, we really spent a lot of the time just finding it really hard to watch the footage because um, you know, he was somebody we really cared about and it felt strange to try to make a story out of this. And interesting, Noe was talking about the pitch. I think uh, Noe, as exec producer and Sonia's producer, said, come on, time to pitch, pitch it at the Scottish, the Edinburgh pitch. We're like, no, don't make us do that, please. And you no, 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 come on, get it together. So we composed this little trailer, which of course didn't work at first. And of course, Noe said, what's the story? It's not clear at all. And of course, we thought we'd better give up as filmmakers, as you always do. Um, but we did kind of keep, keep pushing at it. And interestingly, that first pitch was really, I mean, it's just an interesting thing that the trailer, I think, was, was quite beautiful. But nobody wanted to buy the film. Everybody kind of looked at it and went, oh, yes, it's really moving. And we won the prize of the best pitch. And everyone was like, yes, yes, very moving. But we were like, but nobody's buying it. And we kind of would travel around a bit with this trader and everyone would be like, yes, yes, very beautiful. Yes, yes, somebody, it should be told. Yes, it should be told. But nobody gave us any money. And then I don't know what happened, but something happened where we realised we had to totally change the trainer and make it more about his humour, more about his life, more about that. So we changed it all completely and made it much funnier, much, much more kind of more different layers in it, not just the sad story. And suddenly all the funders came lined up. It was amazing to see the difference. But it took about a year of thinking about it in order for us to get to that stage. So, and the, I mean, the, and the journey of the edit was just something that is just, you know, it was an epic thing to do something like that. I know it doesn't look that way now, but it really was. You know, we, we began by working on it ourselves and trying to get a language and, you know, we'd go off and go away for a few weeks and try and get you know, bigger and bigger and bigger trailers, because of course that's what broadcasters want more these days. They're like, oh, I'll just see a wee bit more, I'll just see a wee bit more, I'll just see a wee bit more until you've almost finished the bloody film. But anyway, we'd just be doing these bigger and bigger, bigger trailers. And <coughs> we were lucky that our mentor was this guy, Janus Biliskov Jensen, who is um, edited this film, Act of Killing, who some of you might know. He's like, I think his films, he's had about three Oscar nominations for his films. He edited Thomas Winterberg's The Hunt, edited um, Dragon, what's it called? Dragon, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, you know, all the fantastic editor. Burma VJ. Burma VJ, all these things. So he comes in and he just asks us questions in the edit. I think he's going to come and sort out the edit, but instead he just wanders 
around asking questions and not really giving any answers, but just kind of nodding and going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So where are we going with this film? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. But he'd hold the question for a long time and eventually we'd come up with an answer and he'd say, yes, a little bit banal though, a little bit banal. So we'd have to go deeper and the process just kept going like that, you know, it just, and he was there as this fantastic wise counsellor. We were very lucky in our wise counsellors all around. And um, then it, we entered a different phase of the edit where we edited with a young Danish editor who, um, <coughs> a guy called Peter Winter, and um, by then Morag had a baby, so I finished the edit with him in Denmark. But you know, it was really touch and go, the whole thing working, quite honestly. It was really a hard job to get it to that, to that kind of phase where it, it felt like it wasn't, it was a very difficult thing for it not to feel like it's just too much suffering. I mean, I think we, we were conscious of that when we were filming. So we tried to think of those spaces when we were filming. Um, I mean, what, what is that about when you're filming? I suppose when you're filming, it means that you're trying to, you know, trying to get Neil not speaking, trying to get the sense of the invisible things that were happening round about that people weren't naming, but which were there. Um, and trying to just wait for things to happen. So like, I mean, Oscar walking down the corridor was kind of, I suppose, a space. And I knew if I, stayed there long enough, he would come down the corridor. And I knew that corridor for me became like a really kind of, it was almost like a refrain in the film was the corridor. Like the nurses would run in and out, the family would run in and out, friends would come in and out. And for each person, that corridor was something else. And for Neil, it was this space where he'd be wheeled. And so little Oscar coming down, it, it felt something else. And it felt like when he came right towards <coughs> the camera, you know, my head was going through, it was like he was walking to his future somehow. And, you know, in a way, by kind of being still in different places in the house, somehow the space became something other than just a literal space, but could move into something else. So I think there was that going on. So that was the filming. Then with the editing, I think, um, I think getting the right space, I still think the film doesn't really quite have enough space. I mean, if I look at it now, I'm like, yeah, I shouldn't put in music in the snow. That was really stupid. I'd love to take it out. Too much piano. Mm. <coughs> That's why I can't bear to watch it now. Like, oh. But anyway, but there is still wee bits of space. And I suppose those wee bits of space, you know, we were determined that we would keep. And we, we probably, um, at certain stages of the edit had too much and then other stages had too little and in a way you don't know that until you're doing it and then sometimes you suggest too much and then other times you're not suggesting enough and it felt like a lot of the things that we got him to say we ended up taking away a lot of what he said so really interestingly even in the sound edit like that bit where his wee boy's playing outside with his pal and he's just lying down initially there was a lot of voice over there, and in the sound edit, we got rid of it all. 
because the sound did so much more work and got rid of a certain boldness <coughs> that was there in the pictures that actually ideally what I wish you could do is you could do your sound edit then you could go back to your picture edit because I think if you could do that you'd create more space probably and if I had my way again I think I'd kind of do a sound edit then do a picture edit then do a sound edit <laughs> but of course you can't afford that I mean, in a way, the situation gave us such a limitation because, um, because we, were, we were stuck filming Neil Stuckness. And for a while, I remember thinking, you know, we have nothing <coughs> else to film. We have to do more things that he imagines. So we'd ask him questions about things that were in his head. But in a way, he's a practical Yorkshireman and he's not talking about a lot of things in his head, you know? He's just like, you know, what you see is what you get with Neil. That's not what was really going on. So what, there was a moment when we realised and it kind of went like, yes, where actually what we needed to do was see the whole world in the house. And here you are, a boring suburban house, but suddenly it was like, this is where all the drama is. It's in this space, and we're not making enough of this space. And that's when we began doing things like filming the curtains in that way, because it was like, okay, so his stuck POV is that he sees the curtains, he sees the window. So the whole drama of the film has to be the changes of time in the curtain with Louise opening and closing and that sense of, you know the way you are as a kid and you look at the patterns in a curtain and it becomes like a world of just thinking like that and then the window is what he sees all the time so what's happening through the window becomes like about so much you know in a way so I think we tried to use the limitations of the house we did a lot of lovely shots of Oscar's toys which I'm very sad is not in the film. The editor hated them. And I kept, when, when the editor was out, I kept putting them in. <laughs> and every time he came back, he'd put them out. So we had this kind of battle of the toys, and I don't think there are, I think there's probably two toys left. But, um, you know, I, I had the sense that Neil's POV and Oscar's POV were the two kind of poles of life, in a way. You had somebody leaving life and someone entering life. And somehow that gave us two limitations too and somehow even the world of that boring house suddenly became quite alive through looking at their POVs within it and through seeing for Oscar you know <coughs> discovering fruit and discovering what he could reach for with his arms and discovering the horses out the window and all of that became it became really rich compared to Neil's kind of moving more into himself as happened in the film. As I say, I think he would have... I mean, having said that, we were there very soon afterwards. I mean, almost like a few hours afterwards we were there, but also to support Louise, because we'd got quite close to Louise then. And actually what happened is when we went in, <coughs> Louise was like, thank goodness you're here, I need to speak to you. Drew the camera into the room and was like, this is what I need to say. And it was almost like the camera had become this other, this other, this other, per this other being for them in a way. It wasn't just about us, it was about the camera and their relationship with the camera was really interesting where Louise was like, I need to speak to the camera. 
after he died. It wasn't like, I need to speak to you, I need to speak to the camera. And then afterwards she felt, she felt kind of, she said, I feel better now. So it was, it was sort of strange. I mean, I think often we think cameras are about taking, and I, th I, I kind of felt really strongly in this film that it wasn't about that, that actually <coughs> it became something else, and it kind of had, it was almost like this invisible audience of the blog who really supported the family so much in that time. And it was almost like this compassionate ear and this compassionate witness. And I, I suppose I saw the cameras that, as a compassionate witness. And I think having that identity shifted, shifted a lot. I suppose what I learned from it was never give up. And maybe that's something to share with you because I think sometimes we have this notion that an idea either works or doesn't. But actually, this didn't have an option of not working, this film. You know? I mean, I'd taken, and Morag had taken that pledge to the family that we'd make this thing. They'd been through so much. It had to work. It had no option. And just to be quite honest, there were so many nights in Denmark where I'd go back to this little rented flat and just want to burst into tears thinking, how is this thing ever going to work? How is it going to work? but somehow it just had to. So, it did. Do you know? And maybe that, that's what I just wanted to share, because I think sometimes we're all, we all have ideas where we think, oh, but it's just not working. It's too complex, it's too this, it's too... Everything, whether it's a script or whether it's a documentary you're editing, it doesn't matter what it is. I guess, you know, being dealing with students, we, we know how much you have that. And I just want to say I totally share that process and how hard it is. And I just want to say that, you know, I think almost everything has the potential of working. But you have got to kind of like just question so much, you know, just work so hard. I think the sheer amount of work just never ceases to amaze me. Aye, so hope you got something from that. Like I said at the beginning there, film available on Amazon and on the website iambreathing.com um, and there's plenty more podcasts available on the SoundCloud page um, which is soundcloud.com forward slash scottdoc um, So yeah, and uh, we hope to see you again soon. Thanks very much. Oh.